job once again relies on mixed methods, non-fiction rendered into compellingly realistic drama thanks to a cast of non-professional actors playing versions of themselves. The result is as stimulating and satisfying as it is iffy and curious. That's from Kay Austin Collins of Rolling Stone talking about Nomadland. That is the heavy favorite right now to win Best Picture, Best Director, and perhaps Best Actress, which would be the third for Frances McDormand. It is our featured review this week here on Cinephile. In addition to that, I was back in the movies. First movie I saw by myself in a theater in five months, News of the World. Had to go support Tom Hanks' latest venture, director's Paul Greengrass. We'll review that. Plus... At long last, my boy Alpha Hill was like, seriously, when are you giving us the top 10? Well, thankfully, I finally got that screener to Nomadland. No, I have not seen Promising Young Woman. I know Sam Surface all over it. I haven't seen Minari yet. I really want to see that, but I can't keep waiting here, right? Let's, for God's sakes, it's middle of February, middle of January here. We don't want to be in the middle of February. And I'm still giving you a top 10 list. So my top 10 films of 2020 I'm releasing today. In addition to that, Johnny Oleksinski, who is the terrific film critic for the New York Post, uh, he is going to give his picks for the best films of 2020 as well. In addition to that, we've got some news involving Army Hammer, which is absolutely disturbing. Also, Robert De Niro, Noah Baumbach, Screen Actors Guild, whole lot more coming up this time here on Cinephile. As always, I appreciate the love and support. You can go to Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. And you can also hit me up on Twitter, at Adnan S. Firk, or also Cinephile Pod, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E-P-O-D. As always, appreciate your comments, your questions, your queries, your feedback, Whatever you got to say, uh, I'm all ears for it, and I appreciate all of you listening. Let's kick it off by talking about Nomadland, shall we? This is Chloe Jaw. So, made a film called... Oh, hang on a second, sir. Before I get going, there was a comment here from Meh Meh. Great stuff this week. Shout out to Joe for noticing great hair. Just watched A Promising Young Woman and thought Carrie Mulligan had great hair in it. Shout out to hair and makeup crew for making movies look so great. All right, well, I appreciate you listening. That's right, Joe did make that comment about hair. Jennifer Aniston's still the best hair going. All right. Nomadland. Chloe Jaw, follow-up to The Rider, which is a film came out in 2018, rave reviews. Uh, this is another extension of her continuing a look at Americana. After losing everything in the Great Recession, a woman embarks on a journey through the American West living as a van-dwelling modern-day nomad. Frances McDormand stars as Fern, a woman who has lost everything and now is houseless. As she has one encounter in a department store, she tells uh, one of her students, no, I'm not homeless, I'm houseless. She lives in a van, and it's about as unglamorous as one would expect. One of the opening scenes of the film shows her squatting down to pee and then running into her van after she makes a quick little pit stop. I mean, we've all been there before, but uh, this is her life all the time. Later on, you see her defecating into a toilet. I mean, they actually have, it's one of the most interesting scenes in the entire movie. There's like a nomad camp. And one of the best things that Chloe Jaw does here is she has real actors like Francis McDormand, the great David Strathairn, but then a lot of other non-actors who are actually nomads. Like, this is their life. They do not have a home. They roam from place to place. Uh, you find uh, work where you can. It's an, it's an itinerant lifestyle, and um, it works for them. And this one sequence, they're in like a camp of nomads, and they're explaining, you know, how do you live on your own? And one of the points one was talking about is, you know, rather than self-deprecating, self-defecating. And you know, literally, she gets like a giant uh, bucket and says, okay, this is a good length, depending on how big you are. I mean, literally, they're going through the vagaries of this. Because think about it. We've all been there, and you got to go, you got to go. Well, this their life, they do not have a toilet. It's not like a motorhome here. Like, it's just a regular old van. I mean, I guess some of the nomads have motorhomes, I suppose. But at least in the case of Fern, it's just a regular old beat-up van. So you got to get a bucket, take care of business, away we go. So this story... One about nomads is something I didn't even realize existed. Didn't realize there was that many of them that you could make a movie about this. But 
It's based on a book by Jessica Bruder, Chloe Jaws, the one who adapted it. It raises lots of interesting questions, which is, you know, you've often heard the expression, home is where the heart is. What if you don't have a physical home? You know, home is something that you create from within. Um, and I know that can sound trite, but the film never does that. It never feels sentimental. It just shows that for these people, you know, finding a new adventure, that is in essence life itself. You know, think, think of Tom Sizemore, the great film Heat. You know, when Neil's asking him if he's in or not, he goes, you know, for me, the action is the juice. I'm in. It's almost like for nomads, you know, the road is the juice. Being able to go from town to town, meeting new friends, meeting strangers, picking up relationships, but then discarding them, that's the juice. That's the life for them. And McDormand's character, you know, slowly reveals itself more fully. The fact that she's had uh, trauma and she's lost everything, and this is why she's ended up this way. And I can totally see her winning another Academy Award. Somebody asked me, what are the resemblances to Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri? And I said, well, that film, she was just rage incarnate. You know, she, was, she said she played it like John Wayne, very swaggering. You know, this film is much more subtler. Uh, and I think in many ways it's a truer performance because uh, it's much more downbeat and much more lived in and certainly unglamorous. As I mentioned, it's vanity free. There's also a full frontal nude scene. That's going to be the best uh, or most notable full frontal nude scene since Kathy Bates and About Schmidt. So McDormand is giving her all to this character. I mentioned my man, David Strathairn. He's one of my favorite. I love that guy. If we could ever get him on Cinephile, loved him uh, in Good Night, Good Luck, Academy Award nominated, and also as Eddie Seacott, Eight Men Out, my favorite baseball movie. Strathairn also in The Sopranos. If you'll recall, he was the love interest of Carmela when her and Tony were separated. So anytime Strathairn's in a movie, I'm in. Now, I wish he had more to do in the movie. I was looking at Gold Derby. He's not one of the prime candidates to get nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and I'm thinking, how is that possible? This movie's going to win Best Picture. How is he not getting nominated? But he's actually not in it a ton. Having said that, whenever he's in it, he gives the film some decency. He's not quite Fern's love interest, but he plays a friend and a confidant and someone with whom uh, she can relate a little bit. Nomadland, ultimately, is a film in which the character is the setting. Like, it's very rare when the setting can actually be a character. And that's why it's so naturalistic. And I think that's what I appreciated most about it. It's the kind of movie that very quickly on, I was able to uh, adapt to the rhythms of it. You know, 10, 15 minutes in, I'm like, okay, I understand this kind of melodic pacing. But I found it very poetic. I found it very lyrical. I think it's beautifully shot. I can totally see it winning not only Best Director, but also Best Cinematography. And it's a story that really resonated with me. Like I said, home is where the heart is. What if you don't have a home? How do you find your happiness? How do you find your true inner goodness uh, Nomadland explores those questions and does so in a very memorable way. Joe? Uh, and, and I didn't realize that um, a lot of the actors in there were, were, were nomads themselves and not actual actors. Do you think that that choice um, grounded the movie a little bit more or made it even more authentic? Absolutely, Joe. I thought it really gave it a sense of verite filmmaking, you know, as you said, authenticity, realism. I mean, there's one guy... I don't know who he is. He's got to be a real nomad. He looks like Santa Claus. I mean, he's great when he's talking about his life and what he's done with his life. And like all these people appear to be escaping something. Again, that's too convenient an excuse. I think some people are just nomads for economic circumstances, right? Can't hold the job down. And so you just go from place to place. But some of these people have had real tragedy, real sadness. They're trying to escape something, you know, family dysfunction, uh, drug problems, alcohol, whatever it is. So like you're seeking a fresh start. And so often in life, people cannot seek a fresh start because they're grounded by familial obligations or whatever the case may be. So I found in some ways it was almost admirable what these nomads do. Like you think that they should be a source of sorrow and pity, 
But in some ways, I said, no, you know what? It's kind of admirable. They, they are not being dictated to by life. They are attacking life on their own terms, which is something that all of us can appreciate. Kay Austin Collins of Rolling Stone wrote, Jaw once again relies on mixed methods, nonfiction rendered into compellingly realistic drama, thanks to a cast of non-professional actors playing versions of themselves. The result is as stunning and stimulating as you one might imagine. That is Nomadland. No surprise, I'm giving that four Maple Leafs. Another review, News of the World, which I saw back in theaters. Five years after the end of the Civil War, Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd crosses paths with a 10-year-old girl taken by the Kiowa people. Forced to return to her aunt and uncle, Kidd agrees to escort the child across the harsh and unforgiving plains of Texas. However, the long journey soon turns into a fight for survival as the traveling companions encounter danger at every turn, both human and natural. Tom Hanks uh, with a role that fits him as easy as a glove, or since this is his first Western, as easy as a cowboy hat fits on his face. Yes, once again, he's a compellingly and authentic, decent man, but he's also someone that's got a little more grit to him. Normally, you don't really see gritty when it comes to Tom Hanks, unless you look at a previous collaboration with Paul Greengrass. That would be 2013's Captain Phillips. So Hanks' character, former Confederate, by the way, this is an interesting job. You literally go town to town with a bunch of newspapers and then read the newspapers aloud. And it's like, you have to be literate to do so, obviously, but you also have to have a, a storyteller's embellish, a, a certain level of panache. And that's where Hanks' Captain Kidd, I think, really shows why this guy is doing this. And at one point, someone asks him, like, you know, why do you have this job? What an odd job. You literally travel from town to town. Again, another drifter. You read the news to people and move on. He goes, well, it's not exactly a choice made by economic circumstance, meaning I'm not getting any money for this, or I'm not getting much for it, I should say. Uh, but he's a former printer. So interesting concept. Former printer from 150 years ago. Clearly, uh, you know, life's not working out well enough for you. So I'm just going to go town to town and read some stories. So Hanks is always as excellent. You know, we've made a lot of the fact people have often compared him to Jimmy Stewart with the decency. But in this time, he feels a little bit like Gary Cooper, you know, a little bit of high noon. The, the film that I kept thinking about, though, was, of course, The Searchers. John Wayne fighting the Apaches to save a girl. In this instance, again, Tom Hanks saving a girl, although he's not on a chase to pursue her. He stumbles upon her, but then with her in tow, he tries to overcome the bad guys. One of the bad guys, memorably played by Michael Angelo Cavino, longtime and loyal listeners of Cinephile will recognize that name. He's the guy who made The Climb, which we'll talk about later in my top 10. He is a guy who says to Tom Hanks at one point, you know, how much for her? He, he literally wants to buy her to have his way with her. It's just disgusting. Like, this is a, a pedophile uh, who's very open about his intentions. Of course, Hanks is disgusted but not realizes he's in trouble. And that's actually one of the best action sequences in the entire film is when Cavino and his band of bandits go after Hanks and the daughter and uh, they have a good old-fashioned shootout. Greengrass is, of course, a director you know because, uh, you know, the born identity and he's got a real skill when it comes to action sequences. Hates tripods, right? It's always a lot of handheld. You know, 93 was a very good movie as well that he made. So... This time, I think he's making more of a, a classical Western. It's more in the, the element of a John Ford. You, know, you don't really see Monument Valley. It's Texas, not Utah. But it's got that sweeping feel to it. Terrific score. I believe it's James Newton Howard with the score. You know, good production design. So it's a, a lavishly presented movie. I was very grateful to see it on the big screen. It is definitely overly familiar. At times, it's a little sentimental, especially the scenes where Hanks is relating to the daughter. You can see the father-daughter parallels a mile away. Johanna is the character of the daughter. Helena Zengel plays her. Another uh, affecting performance. This is a girl who can't speak. She's, she's been kidnapped by the Kiowa tribe, so she only speaks that native language, but she herself is German, so no English. So the scenes of Hanks trying to communicate with her are 
in essence, uh, a battle along with the fact he's going to deal with Cavino, the bandits. He's going to deal with some other nefarious characters along the way. He's going to deal with a tornado, which is rather vividly depicted. All of that means is that News of the World is a movie that I recommend. If you like Westerns, if you like Tom Hanks, if you appreciate, like I said, classical filmmaking, there's a lot to appreciate about this movie and just the nature of storytelling and how it has endured it not only for decades, but also for centuries. Three May Police I'm giving to News of the World. Joe? I'm noticing a, a nomadic theme to today's shows and movies. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, you mentioned the cinematography because of that for Nomadland. How was the cinematography in this movie, and do you think that it could get a nomination? Yeah, I think it could get nominated again, Joe. You're right. I mean, these sweeping vistas of the, the mountains, and it's, again, a different feel to it than some other Westerns. Like, it's not like Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Uh, like I said, it's more on that kind of tone of the searchers or maybe a high noon. And like I said, normally green grass in the past. They'll show you that tripod and shaky cam and all that kind of thing. But this time, it's more of these more handsomely mounted shots, you know, just more establishing shots. But along with Let Him Go, you know, good year for Westerns. Rarely do you get any good Westerns. A couple of good Westerns came out this season. So it's definitely notable. Richard Roper of Chicago sometimes, a rough and tumble Texas road trip movie finds the right balance of character insight and bare knuckled action. And Chris Ager of Screen Rant, News of the World is a standard Western with a predictable story, though it's elevated by Hanks and Helena Zengel's performances. All right, so those are the two reviews here. Now it's time for the top 10. And once again, we've got news coming up in Johnny Olekczynski momentarily. Top 10 films of 2020 without further ado. Honorable mentions, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman offer a one-two powerhouse punch in this adaptation of the August Wilson play. And Onward, a touching father, son, and brother story from Pixar based on filmmaker Dan Scanlon's life. Number 10, One Night in Miami. Kingsley Benadir takes on the paramount challenge of embodying Malcolm X and rises to the occasion, but it's Leslie Odom Jr.'s soulful Sam Cooke who steals the show. The first man of soul who, thanks to Malcolm, was imbued with a social conscience as well. A strong directorial debut from Regina King adapting a play featuring four pivotal black men in American history. Yes, I actually wrote these out. Normally I freestyle, but I wanted to write them out. Old school. Hard eight. Number nine, Palm Springs. It keeps going and going and going. Not the Energizer Bunny, but the timeless time loop of Palm Springs, which pays homage to Groundhog Day while being its own special creation. Laugh out loud funny, especially a ridiculous J.K. Simmons, further showcases Andy Samberg as a genuine comic talent while also making Krista Milioti a name to watch moving forward. Number eight, Defy Bloods. Delroy Lindo gives the best performance of his career playing a Trump-supporting, MAGA-hat-wearing former Vietnam veteran who combines with his fellow squad members to return to the scene of their crimes, Vietnam, to find some long-lost gold. Lindo gives a scorching performance, while this is a much more superior war film than Spike Lee than his previous effort, Miracle at St. Anna. Think Platoon mixed with the treasure of the Sierra Madre, and yes, there is an homage to We Don't Need No Stinking Badges. Number seven, Let Him Go. Kevin Costner and Diane Lane join forces for familiar terrain for both of them. Beautifully shot in Calgary, Alberta, it's a Western which has dual meaning, not only retrieving their grandson from the evil clutches of Leslie Manville, who's a hoot, but also letting go after the terrible loss of their son. Elegiac and memorable. Number six, Borat, subsequent movie film. Credit the audacity of Sasha Baron Cohen as he brings back his beloved Borat character to showcase the idiocy of the truly prejudiced and imbeciles who still populate America. Whether it's at an abortion clinic, racist rallies, or sending his daughter Maria Bakalova, great performance, to seduce Rudy Giuliani, SBC is nothing short of fearless. A comedic Daniel Day-Lewis willing to stay in character and go method for his art. Number five, Pieces of a Woman. 
Vanessa Kirby is devastating, playing a mother who suffers the agonizing death of her infant immediately after giving birth. Deeply affecting performances from Shia LaBeouf and former Oscar winner Ellen Burstyn in this film, executive produced by Martin Scorsese. The first 30 minutes with steady cams and no cuts is stunning. Number four, Soul. Nothing hits the heartstrings like Pixar. The first film from this company featuring a black lead. This is the story of Joe, a music teacher and wannabe jazz musician who steps into a manhole cover and ends up in the great beyond. At one point, Joe, who isn't ready to call it quits, winds up in the body of a cat. And that's another example of how ingenious Pixar is, and yes, sometimes just downright weird. Incredible music from Jean-Baptiste, enjoyable for parents and children alike. The ending is guaranteed to put a lump in your throat. It's nothing short of life-affirming. Number three, Nomadland. Chloe Jaws Stunner is the favorite to win Best Picture and Best Director in this empathetic look at nomads who live a transient lifestyle. Frances McDormand could win her third Oscar playing a woman who has lost it all but still has the resolve to keep on trucking. Good supporting work from David Strathairn and a slew of non-actors and an amazing use of setting as a veritable character. Number two, The Climb. Quite possibly the greatest bromance movie of all time. From Michelangelo Cavino and Kyle Marvin, it's the hilarious story of two best friends through various times in their life. Not only witty, but also artistic, with tracking shots that will make you swoon. And number one is Sound of Metal. Riz Ahmed gives a tour de force performance in Darius Martyr's debut feature. Playing a heavy metal drummer who suddenly loses his hearing, Ahmed is heartbreaking. Also worthy of note is Paul Racy, a sleeper pick for Best Supporting Actor, who runs a school for the hearing impaired and rehabilitation. Terrific script which never hits a false note and an inventive use of sound putting you in the lead character's head and heart. Those are my best films of 2020. To recap the list here quickly for you, honorable mentions to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Onward. Number 10 is One Night in Miami. Number 9 is Palm Springs. Number 8 is Defy Bloods. Number 7 is Let Him Go. Number 6 is Borat Subsequent Movie Film. Number 5, Pieces of a Woman. Number 4 is Soul. Number 3 is Nomadland. Number 2 is The Climb. And number 1, my best picture of the year, is Sound of Metal. Joe, what do you got? Wow. Well, we do have a lot of overlaps. On our list, uh, your your list is amazing. I I will preface mine by saying that I have not seen uh, all the movies from 2020, but this is my top ten of the 2020 movies that I've seen. So first, my honorable mention is Color Out of Space. Is this really trippy H.P. Lovecraft adaptation in the same vein of other books of his, like Reanimator or From Beyond? It stars Nicolas Cage. It is really weird. I watched it to open up the Halloween season, and it was the perfect movie for that. So now on to my top 10. I have, as my number 10, I have Greyhound, Tom Hanks playing a naval captain. I love battles. I love the open ocean, and I love ships. Greyhound is my number 10. And plus, me and my friends were just joking the entire time after I watched it. Hard rudder, right, 42, (laughs) just using that vernacular. Uh, number nine, Pieces of a Woman, um, heavy. Vanessa Kirby's performance in it was incredible. It makes you feel all of the emotions, story of overcoming and perseverance. Number eight for me is Mank, David Fincher. I really liked the sound design. It really cracked my top ten because of the sound design. And also uh, that the fact that it was written by his dad, Jack Fincher, kind of means something to me too. Number seven, I have Mangrove. I was trying to debate Adnan between Mangrove and the trial of Chicago 7. Mangrove, I initially push, was pushed over the edge because Trial of Chicago 7 was a little bit self-indulgent and cheesy at times. Number six is a Spike Lee joint, 
But no, not to Five Bloods. It's David Byrne's American Utopia. I'm a huge Talking Heads fan. Love David Byrne. Spike Lee directed this, and it lives up to all the hype and everything that I was hoping for from it. Just a fantastic stage show. Great rock film. Um, number five is The Five Bloods. I, I, I can't add to what you just said. It is a fantastic movie, and if people haven't seen it, it's on Netflix right now. It's an important movie to watch, especially for 2020. Number four is Charlie Kaufman, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and Jesse Plemson in, in that role. So trippy. We interviewed the author of the book here on Cinephile, and it, it was just truly an odd, bittersweet film. Number three, I finally got to it this weekend, but I watched Sound of Metal, and oh my goodness, it hit all the figurative and literal notes in that movie. He, uh, the, the story is fantastic, and being a sound engineer, but also a drummer, it particularly close. Plus, I'm 5'8", and Riz Ahmed is 5'8", so I really felt like I was living through him in that film. And then number two is Borat, subsequent movie film, best comedy of 2020, a real performance piece. I absolutely loved it. I hope it gets all the recognition at the Oscars this year. Number one is Disney Pixar's Soul. Again, I don't know if it's just because I'm such a music nerd and that's why I gravitated towards it, but I thought it was absolutely fantastic from the score to the you know juxtaposition of the afterlife to Earth and his adventure through it. Soul, to me, was the best movie of 2020, so mine... Just to recap, our honorable mention, Color, Out of Space, then Greyhound at number 10, number 9, Pieces of a Woman, number 8, Mank, number 7, Mangrove, number 6, David Burns, American Utopia, number 5, Da Five Bloods, number 4, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, number 3, The Sound of Metal, number 2, Borat's subsequent movie film, and number 1, Soul. I love the fact that I'm Thinking of Ending Things in there. I did think about potentially an honorable mention. It was different. The fact that number 4 shows how much you appreciate Charlie Kaufman, daring storytelling, and I like your reasoning for Mank. Uh, again, at times it felt a little hollow to me, but the sound design was remarkable. I'm just glad you got Sound of Metal in your top three, and no one's a bigger fan of Soul than you. So, David Burns' American Utopia. I like the fact you went with the two Spike Lee films in the list as well. Good job, Joe. Oh, yeah. It's great. And, you know, the Talking Heads' first, like, concert rock called Stop Making Sense from 1984 was directed by Jonathan Demme. And so this, I feel like, is a real companion piece to that. And so I cannot recommend it enough. Such a creative, original show. And Spike Lee does a fantastic job directing it and capturing it. Nice. All right. After the break, entertainment news. I speak with writer and critic of the New York Post, Johnny Oleksinski, plus in honor of Nomadland, the Mount Rushmore of Francis McDormand movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. All right, entertainment news. I got a text from my friend Michelle Margot. She said, what do you think of the Army Hammer news? I, of course, had no idea. I Googled it and was like, oh my God, I'm taking it back. He's Hannibal Lecter. Army Hammer stepped away from his role opposite Jennifer Lopez in the upcoming Shotgun Wedding, decrying vicious and spurious online attacks against him as the cause. Hammer was set to begin production on the romantic adventure immediately, but will now be recast. The news comes after the Call Me By Your Name star began trending on social media last weekend after direct Instagram messages that appear to be written by Hammer which have not been verified, were posted. I'm not responding to these bullshit claims, but in light of the vicious and spurious online attacks against me, I cannot in good conscience now leave my children for four months to shoot a film in the Dominican Republic. Lionsgate is supporting me in this. I'm grateful for them for that. The messages shared graphic sexual fantasies going as far as cannibalism, with the actor appearing to write to a woman on the app that he is 100% a cannibal and desired to drink your blood. Hammer was most recently seen in Netflix's Rebecca. The one thing that I was thinking about, Joe, was he was set to star in which we discussed her in Cinephile, the Paramount Plus TV series, The Offer, the behind-the-scenes story of the making of The Godfather. Forget about this crappy romantic movie you're going to make with J-Lo. I want to know what's happened to this Godfather story. But I, I never would have thought, Joe, trending would be Army Hammer and cannibalism. Oh, yeah. This is such a bizarre movie i just wonder what is going to happen to his career post this scandal but i yeah do you think they'll re recast him for the offer what, what do you think i think so like this sounds fairly toxic unless he can prove that's not him like i said those messages were not verified but again i just don't understand why someone's going to this length to screw with them unless it's i don't know maybe he's having some something on the side something want to get back against him and his wife i i have no idea but it's just bizarre Bizarre is only a word for it. Like, it wasn't just the cannibalism. There was, like, rape fantasies in there. Like, he wants to choke people. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, listen, that, that is way too toxic right now to, to dive into, you know, if you're a studio, if you're trying to make a, make a major production. So I, I don't know what the damage control is on this, but best of luck to Army Hammer as he tries to figure something out. Um, we talked about Nomadland a lot. Wanted to let you all know when you can find it. It's going to be debuting in select IMAX venues January 29th, opening in traditional theaters and drive-in locations, February 19th. On that day, No My Land will also premiere on Hulu. So you're wondering, when the hell can I watch this? February 19th on Hulu and in theaters. Searchlight Pictures uh, also plans to premiere internationally on March 4th. Nomadland, it is going to be a big-time heavyweight. Also, Noah Baumbach. Love him, right? Marriage Story. Well, apparently he loves Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig. They're going to star in the Don DeLillo adaptation of White Noise. Baumbach in a direct... A feature film, The White Noise, came out back in 1985. Driver and Gerwig reuniting with the director. They both worked with them before. It's going to be a drama produced by Netflix. Academic satire slash marriage comedy hailed as a classic of postmodern literature. White Noise tells the story of Jack Gladney, likely Driver's character, a professor of Hitler studies, and his wife Babette, again, likely Gerwig, as they navigate their family life with four ultra-modern children to the background babble of brand-name consumerism. So if you're a fan of uh, those guys, look out for that. I love Bob De Niro. How about this cast? Robert De Niro reuniting with David O. Russell. Ready for this? Michael Shannon, another one of my favorites. Chris Rock, loved him in Fargo. Anya Taylor-Joy, Andrea Riseborough. Mathias Chenert, who I loved in The Mustang. Longtime cinephile listeners know I love that movie. Alessandra Nivola. Timothy Oliphant. Give it up for uh, Deadwood. And then we get the big ones. Zoe Saldana, Rami Malek, Academy Award winner, John David Washington, Margot Robbie, for God's sakes, and Christian Bale. This is the greatest cast ever. Filming underway in California. Russell has not released a movie since 2015's Joy, 
which I saw with Steve Oling when we were at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. What a bad movie that was. And what a joke, by the way. Jennifer Lawrence actually got nominated for an Oscar for that movie. What an absolute farce. Uh, that movie sucked, but he is a very good director, Silver Linings Playbook, notably. And I just enjoyed Three Kings. I finally saw that. So David O. Russell's new movie, Incredible Cast, uh, that's coming out. Joe, can you think of a cast with better names? That's insane. I can think of one, and that was American Hustle in 2013, and uh, that movie didn't pan out for me. I'm really hoping that this isn't just uh, contingent on the same cast, uh, or like on a big cast, but that the story is there. But this is, to your point, an incredible cast. Mike Myers is in it. I haven't seen him in years. You know, Do you remember the last thing you saw with Mike Myers? No, I remember he had some drama he was in last year. I remember he was promoting pre-pandemic. It was a small role action movie. Who the hell was in it? Maybe Charlize Theron. I can't remember it now. I remember he had a small role. It did not turn out well. Somebody will tell me what it was. But uh, yeah, Mike Myers in a movie. I mean, that's, you're right. That's cause for celebration. You know, enough just to cash and checks for Austin Powers. And you're right about American Hustle. God, was I disappointed. I can't remember the critic, but it was somebody who said it was like an imitation of a Scorsese movie. I'm like, yeah, exactly. It's not the real thing. It's just, it's like a bad imitation of it. I was shocked that movie got so much Oscar love. Uh, lastly, the SAG Awards are now going to be held on April 4th, already postponed once from January 24th to mid-March, now trying to buy a few more weeks as Hollywood tries to navigate the pandemic. The Academy Awards set for April 25th, so the SAGs will take place, we hope, fingers crossed, April 4th. Uh, the eligibility period for the new batch of nominees runs from January 1st to February 28th, so again, normally you're used to all the nominees being in, here's a little bit more of a window, so the SAGs, uh, they are coming up at that point in time. All right. That is your entertainment news. Now time for a terrific guest for the New York Post. Pleasure to bring in one of my favorite film critics. His name is Johnny Oleksinski. He is a writer for the New York Post. And before joining the Post in 2015, he actually worked as an editorial assistant for the Chicago Tribune. Prior to that, served as an assistant theater editor and chief theater critic for New City starting in January 2013. Also holds a BS in theater from Illinois State University. So I want to start there, actually, Johnny. Before we get into the movies, sometimes people accuse someone of being theatrical. You truly have a theatrical background. How did you get to this place in your career now reviewing movies for the Post? Well, well, I got to tell you, um, first of all, a, a BS in theater, indeed. Uh, you know, it's such a, I've made the most of that degree. I went to yeah, Illinois State. Um, I always wanted to be a stage actor. Uh, and then I had this great professor who told me he thought I might be more of a critic. Uh, and so what I would do, so I started this blog and I would take the Megabus every weekend up to Chicago and I would go to Steppenwolf and the Goodman. And I would, you know, file reviews for this blog. And suddenly I was invited to shows. Uh, I got asked to come to the Chicago Tribune, if you can believe it, asked to come to a newspaper instead of laid off from a newspaper. Um, and then I was friends with, uh, I'm like, you know, summarizing through maybe seven years of craziness. Uh, I was friends with people at the New York Post and I applied there. Uh, do you remember, remember Lou Luminick, the great critic who was uh, before me? Absolutely. So Lou Luminick, I used to work under him. I edited Lou Luminick for a while at the Post. I'd write little features about actors. And when he retired and Kyle Smith went to the National Review, uh, they picked me to be the critic. Uh, I, I think it's a great job. Thank you for your nice compliments and the, the bio. I barely know my bio. <laughs> well, listen, Johnny, I, I laugh because people 
make fun of me. They go, God, you love critics so much and you just love film criticism. And I said, well, listen, anybody that loves movies, wouldn't you love everything involved with movies? Meaning you not only like watching movies, you like reading about movies, you like learning about movies, you like hearing tidbits, stories, et cetera. So someone like you who really appreciates film, but I think also the best comment I can give you is you do not suffer fools gladly. Like if you don't like something, you'll say it, which is, I would think both a pro and con when it comes to be a film critic. The good part is you can tell people when something's worthless. At the same time, maybe sometimes you want to be diplomatic about things, but I always find you're very honest in reviews, which is the best quality you can have. I try to be. You know, I think that artists, like you said, they get very frustrated, uh, very angry, but there are so many different outlets and different styles of writing. So, you know, you might get a, if she's lucky, like a 1,200-word review from Manola Dargis, uh, that is perhaps more thoughtful in the New York Times style. Uh, and, you know, an interview or rather a review in the New Yorker will be longer and maybe more analytic. But post readers uh, tend to want direct answers. Uh, I do believe that part of my job is for consumers. I think time is more valuable than ever. So I always like to say that within the first three sentences of one of my reviews, you should know exactly how I feel about it. It's a great point. I, I, it's interesting about knowing your audience. You know, I'm a huge sports guy, so listen, I'm friends with Joel Sherman at the Post, and I, I get you what you're saying. The, uh-huh. New York, the, the New York Post reader, Andrew Martian, all those guys, I got, the, the, the New York Post reader and writer is looking for a certain way of looking at things. So you're right. I got to be blunt. I got to be honest. That doesn't mean I can't show off my cinematic skills. Like, I think in your News the World review, you talked about, you know, homages to classic Westerns, the searchers, whatever. Like, obviously, I know reading your stuff, you know your stuff, but I think it's an interesting point. You've got to be able to connect with your audience. The last thing anyone wants is, who's this highfalutin uh, Johnny Oleksinski, who's on his high horse, tell me what to watch, <laughs> making references to movies he's never heard of. So you got to connect to the people, but still do it in a way that's very entertaining. Right. I could just, you know, uh, spout off a bunch of Bergman references um, for a whole review just to make myself you know, feel better about my education. Uh, but I don't think people will read that. I think they'll turn the page and go read Cindy Adams instead. And I want them to pause on me for a little while. <laughs> well, let's dive into a couple of movies here. I just saw News of the World. I'm, I'm here in North Jersey where the theaters are still open. So I was able to go watch a movie in a theater, which is a huge blessing. Mask on, socially distant, 25%, all the rest of it. Your review, Johnny, kid taps into all the qualities that make Hanks one of the world's most popular actors. Pathos, empathy, star quarterback charisma, and a lesser seen side, grit. I like that last point you made specifically. When somebody asked me at News of the World, I said, yeah, it's Tom Hanks playing a compellingly decent man, as you'd expect. There's a father-daughter analogy, et cetera. But the point you made about grit, I think, is well taken. I don't think other people recognize that. This is, in some ways, it's deceptively a Tom Hanks performance. There's different shades to it, right? Yeah, you know, he's such a kind actor, and that's why people like him so much. You know, regularly, uh, I forget what organization releases it, but there's those... uh, star favorability numbers, right? And it tells us who the public likes and trusts the most. And Tom Hanks is routinely in the top two or three. And that's because, you know, people remember Forrest Gump and Big and these nice, these nice Hanksian Philadelphia, these nice Hanksian characters. You don't see many of them holding guns and, you know, shoving people up against walls. And I thought that was such a compelling juxtaposition where you have still, you know, nice guy, Tom Hanks, you know, uh, you know, wish you were my stepdad, Tom Hanks, and this guy that will not hesitate to kill to protect that girl, Uh, you know, that that uh, shootout sequence against the hill, wasn't that freaky? 
Oh my God. And I, I think you wrote in there, like Greengrass is known for, you know, hating the tripod and shaky cam and all the rest of it. But I, I love Michelangelo Cavino because I love that movie, The Climb, with him and Kyle Marvin, which I know a lot mm-hmm. of people saw. So I thought it was hysterical. Seeing him here playing this uh, pedophile, I mean, it's just horrible. But you're right. That whole sequence is really well orchestrated. Yeah. And I, for Greengrass, I thought the movie also was very elegant. Uh, you know, anything this year, like you said about going to a movie theater, I, last time I was at a movie theater was for Tenet when they reopened in Connecticut. So I took, you know, a four hour jaunt on a train, a two cabs and a bus, you know, just to see Tenet, which I don't know. I don't know if that was worth the eight hour commute. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's, you know, I had to watch News of the World on a screener, but it really was a, a compelling cinematic experience. And I, while this has been a pretty good year for movies, I think much better than I would have expected given the fact that we're all locked in our houses. Uh, it was nice to see something that felt big with, you know, big emotions, sweeping shots. We haven't had that much of that this year. No, you're right. And that brings me to the New York Film Critics Awards. So I've always been a New York Film Critics guy over LA Film Critics. Not that I'm from the city. I'm actually Canadian. So I have no bias towards New York or LA. But ever since the New York Film Critics went Goodfellas for Best Picture and LA did whatever the hell they did in 1990, I don't think it was Dancing with the Wolves. They did not do Goodfellas. I've always been a New York Film Critics guy. <laughs> so whatever, whatever you guys are saying, I go, okay, that's, I'm always taking stock in. Except for this year. I regret to inform you, never, rarely, sometimes, always, I found excruciatingly dull. It's an important subject matter. There's no question about that. And I appreciate the deliberate pacing and the verite style, but I also found it somnambulant, to use a word that Manola Dargis would appreciate. And <laughs> first cow, which you guys gave best picture. Johnny, I'll give it another chance because you and a lot of other smart people say it's brilliant, but I got to tell you, I watched about 20 minutes and I was waiting for a cow to get slaughtered. Sell me on first cow, please. <laughs> so first of all, you can't blame me for this because I'm actually not a member of the New York Film Critics Circle. Okay. I love going to their party. Um, but, you know, the post used to have four people in it. We had, uh, not, we still have Sarah Stewart, but uh, Lou Luminick, Kyle Smith, and Farron smith Nem used to all be there. And I, while I'm glad that you uh, prefer uh, our New York Circle to the Los Angeles Circle, I prefer pretty much everything in New York to Los Angeles, they <laughs> haven't been quite right the past several years. They're, you know, I always say one of the first litmus tests towards whether you're not going to win an Oscar is if the New York Film Critics Circle names you best film. <laughs> you know, it really is a sort of an, es- an esoteric bunch of people these days. All lovely. <laughs> no, but that's a great point. Like, whenever people tell me, oh, is this going to win Best Picture? I said, well, go to, again, my hometown, Toronto. Like, TIFF is an excellent predictor, as you know. Hey, Green Book does well there. Nomadland won Best Picture. I'm like, yeah, that's that's a pretty good indication. Oh, the Golden Lion was Joker won. Well, okay, might get nominated. Not sure about Best Picture. But you're right. New York, esoteric is the word. To, to go back to a bunch of people who would love to discuss Ingmar Bergman movies, that is a New York film critic circle. I agree. Yeah, and they, uh, you know, and I, I do think they will give a lot of uh, worthy actors awards. For instance, one of my favorite choices they've made in recent years was when they gave Tiffany Haddish Best Supporting Actress for uh, Girls Trip because nice. they, you know, she definitely deserved it. That was a breakout comedic performance like few others. Uh, but the Oscars are still a little too afraid more often than not to... Uh, you know, give a comedian a pat on the back unless there's a nice scene of them sobbing somewhere. If it's a dramedy, then maybe they'll consider it. Uh, but the New York Film Critics Circle, I think, will make the occasional smart decision. 
but they also are totally kooky. Yeah, to your point, so Sasha Baron Cohen, I had Borat, subsequent movie film, my number six film of 2020, and yet I'm reading Gold Derby and all these Oscar prognostications, and the only chance that movie has is maybe, God willing, Maria Bakalova might get nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but he is not going to get nominated for what he should be, which is Borat, but he might get nominated for The Trial of Chicago 7 for Best Supporting Actress. So that is perfectly your point. We won't give him the reward for the comedy. Oh, but he does a drama. Well, what the hell? Let's reward him there. Yeah, and actually that award, if, if they you know do nominate him for Trial of Chicago 7, that would be something of a Band-Aid for not nominating him for the first Borat, which to this moment is you know one of the best co- comedies of the century. Uh, and that was one of the best character creations. They gave him, you know, what the best original screenplay nomination, yeah. which you can't really separate the screenplay from the character, from the improvisation. A hundred percent. And we all know this. Comedies don't get as much love at the Oscars as dramas, yada, yada, yada. But I'm with you. I mean, I, I call him a comic Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, he's method acting. He's absolutely fearless. Uh, just because one guy's doing Lincoln and another guy's doing a character from Kazakhstan, uh, listen, I'm not splitting hairs. They're both huge, huge talents. Uh, let's get to my favorite movie of the year. We're talking with Johnny Oleksinski, by the way, the New York Post, terrific film critic. Uh, that would be Sound of Metal. I had heard the buzz about it. And I said, this feels like something I would like. It's, it's dark. It's disturbing. Indie vibe. Riz Ahmed. Here we go. And I absolutely loved it. It was 100% immersive. And not only his performance, which I think he'll get nominated. I don't think he'll win. There's too much uh, buzz for Bozeman and uh, Delroy Lindo to Five Bloods, who was great. Maybe Anthony Hopkins, the father. But I, I, I'm confident Riz will get a nomination because there's enough people who have seen it who say, oh, no, this is one of those, you know, just brave, gutsy, tour-de-force performances. And I love the use of the sound design. I mean, that sounds awfully nerdy, but I'd love to tell someone, hey, you got to watch Sound of Metal for the sound design. It's really inventive. First-time feature from Darius Martyr. Were you as taken with Sound of Metal as I was? Well, you're going to kill me over the phone because I didn't see it. But <laughs> I am somewhat infatuated in, in, in with Riz Ahmed, so I agree that he's a big talent. I love that you liked it because that's one of those movies that, uh, you know, one of the tragedies of for film anyway in 2020 was these constant delays and i swear that movie had been on our schedule moved six or seven times over the course of the year and i think that hurt uh some of these films chances for buzz and audience you know and they not all of them have the benefit of giant netflix ad campaigns or even just the app where you see it you know you see the main poster on your screen gigantically uh but I do, I do think Riz Ahmed's poised to be a very big star. I don't know why he hasn't made that leap yet. Yeah, I think he's an enormous talent. I mean, Emmy winner for the night of, I thought he was really uh, impressive in Nightcrawler. And now, you know, he did Rogue One. That's fine. You know, you make a blockbuster, make a little bit of money, get your name out there. But I, I'm with you. I, I hope he makes more of these choices and really kind of just explodes into the zeitgeist. So I mean, let's go from being like one of these actors on the outside looking in who's really going to be a major, major star. And by the way, I'm not going to kill you for not seeing it. Owen Gleiberman, the great critic for Entertainment Weekly, now with Variety, he told me years ago, he goes, it was so funny at EW, you know, me, I can't see every movie. I'm like, no, of course not. He goes, I probably see three or four movies a week. And he goes, so me and Lisa Schwartzman would split the movies. And he goes, so for years, people would say, you know, hey, hey, what'd you think of, I'm just throwing in a movie, Dead Man Walking. You say, well, I never saw it. They go, what? How could you never see it? You're a film critic. But it, it actually raises <laughs> the point. You, you can't see everything all the time. And eventually, once the year's over, you're like, hey, you know what? I'm just not going to watch United 93. I didn't have to review it. Somebody else did. I think I got the gist of it. Let's move on, right? Well, you know, what's very weird this year in particular is, I don't know about you, but whenever I would get a press release, a press release and I saw the, the letters V-O-D, you know, my, I'd feel my stomach churn and, I, you know, 
get, get the vomit bucket and delete, delete, delete. Because that used to be where, you know, people sent just the most vile crap. And suddenly, well, everything's VOD. And especially in those, the first few months of the pandemic, I was reviewing things that I wouldn't, you know, force my dog to watch. So it's just been a very strange year where um, the amount of movies that we're watching, I think, has gone up exponentially. Than oh, yeah. It was when we all were schlepping to screening. Right. I've been in the BFCA, the Broadcast Film Critics Association, the last couple of years. And so to your point, I was just waiting for the screeners. And I'm like, okay, normally mid-October, November, the screeners come. As you know, you get bombarded. It's just a deluge of stuff. Some of it's worthwhile. A lot of it's not. Whereas this year, I'm like, wait, can, is there just slow mail this year? Like, what's going on? Like, how, who's, what do I have to do right here to get a screener to Minari? And, and, and you're right. I, I kept waiting. Even Promising Young Woman, I still haven't seen. I hear it's brilliant. I'm like, listen, I'd like to watch it. I just want to get some of these screeners. So I, I, I always find it, eight, two things now. One, it's amusing that you still get stuff in the mail. Like, why don't you just email me and I can you know, watch it on my, uh, you know, stream it on my laptop or whatever. But you're right about the VOD. It used to be the kiss of death. Before it was like, oh, I'll watch this at home. It's not being released in theaters. You're like, oh, God, that's got to be a turkey. Like, how could this film not get a, a limited theatrical release? And now, unfortunately, it's just the way we've adapted, right? Yeah. And, and it's interesting what you say about screeners, because this would be the time, right? All, all my union friends in, in SAG uh, and the Writers Guild, their mailboxes would be filled with discs. And this is when they would watch movies. And that's how they build Oscar momentum. They're, you know, all sort of enjoying it over Christmas time and in the, uh, you know, doldrums of January. And this year, we've, you know, been watching all these movies on our, you know, computers since, you know, since March. So you mentioned uh, The Five Buds. I, does that really have the momentum, a movie that we, I think, watched in April for someone, you know, I thought, you know, Del, Del Lindo's performance was, was scorching and exciting, but it was back in April. And that's just not how our award show timeline has worked for the you know past couple decades. So I, I do I have no idea. The Oscars list this year is going to be really weird. A hundred percent. Normally, right now, as you know, we'd be knee deep in well. Think about mid-January. We already would have had the Golden Globes. We've already had the nominations in December. The Oscar nominations would be imminent. And then we would have had the... Listen, the year ago, the Oscars were in late February. Now it's going to be late April. It's going to be very, very strange the way these movies are going to get rolled out. Um, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I want to hear your favorite movies. Give me your top two or three, whatever you like. You're the movies that if someone says to you, hey, Johnny, come on, you're an expert. What's the movie you got to go see? What are you telling them? So a what's almost become a part-time job for me is just trying to sell the movie Mank to people. <laughs> it's so hard. You know, it, 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 if we were, you know, if elevators had six feet of space in them, I'd be in an elevator saying, hey, you know, uh, the movie Mank is about the guy that wrote Citizen Kane. And, you know, <laughs> during that elevator ride, the other person would have fallen asleep. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them. It really is a hard sell. But uh, what David Fincher did with his late father's script about the, um, you know, uh, fabled co-writer of Citizen Kane, Herman Mankiewicz. Uh, I thought it really was the most cinematic experience that we got in a year of very small, intimate movies. This one was the, the way that he uh, recreated, uh, you know, the Los Angeles of the 1930s, while also sort of borrowing uh, the old Citizen Kane aesthetic. It was really remarkable. And Gary Oldman, you know, it's almost boring to say that Gary Oldman was good in something and he transformed. But at least this time he didn't put on a fat suit. You know, he just transformed by acting. 
Yeah, I'm with you on the tough sell. I remember my brother, who uh, does not share my taste, he's more, you know, uh, action movies and such. He was like, uh, what about Mank? And I go, listen, there's no chance you're going to get through 10 minutes. Like, unless you love old movies, old Hollywood, to your point, unless you can appreciate production design and the craft of filmmaking and Orson Welles' influence in cinema. And already he's like, okay, I'm out. I'm like, yeah, yeah, trust me. You're not going to like this. But 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 it's going to get like 12 Oscar nominations and people like me and you are going to go, oh my God, this movie's great. So... I, I, even the sound design with Mank. I mean, it's one thing to look like an old movie from that era, but it sounds like a movie from that era, which is remarkable. Yeah, it did. It had a weird, because uh, I actually, at first, when I was watching it, I kept checking my TV set, thinking, oh, gosh, I, you know, I really don't have the facilities to be doing my job, do I? But then I realized that cavernous effect was all purposeful, and it, and it really did transport you. Uh, you know, an, an easier movie, a movie that I do think everybody will like, is uh, a great documentary I saw at Sundance last year, my last, you know, great big festival that wasn't at home. And that was Boys State, the documentary Boys State, which is about a real program in Texas and around the country, but this one particularly focused on Texas, where hundreds of 17-year-old boys, you know, the worst humans in the world, uh, come together and have a uh, fake, they form a fake government. And they compete for the top role of governor. And it's all just uh, really fiery. It's, it's like uh, watching House of Cards or something, but with teenagers. And it does feel like a great drama. Uh, I think it'll do, I think that will do really well at the Oscars. I don't know. For some people, that might be an overwhelming amount of politics right now. But it is a lot of fun. And it shows you how uh, politicians get made. All right. It's called Boys Faith. We'll look forward to that. Uh, I'm now following you on Instagram. I just found you. The big shock here, Johnny, how are you not on Twitter? Young guy, but you're eschewing social media, at least when it comes to Twitter. Why? I used to have a Twitter. Uh, it was at Johnny OMG. I just found that no matter, but part of it's the New York Post, right? There's uh, We have our great fans, such as yourself, uh, and then we have our detractors. And the detractors are particularly loud. I, I, you know, I'm sure that uh, Tony Scott and Michael Phillips and all of those guys also get their fair share of, you know, uh, bile tweaks. Uh, but at the post, it was a lot. And I just thought, you know, this isn't giving me many clicks via Twitter. And, you know, is it really worth it? I, so I, that, that's my main reason. Instagram, I actually get comments on Instagram, too. But usually I'm just, you know, posting pictures of things I bake. Yeah, I see here uh, you're a Cubs fan. You went to City Field for a game. The best post I, I quickly scrolled through is the New York Post cover. It says Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, Johnny Olszewski's review, and then Bratz All, 30 years for Ivy Leaguer who killed dad over his allowance. And you wrote, only my paper <laughs> You wrote only my paper will let me be bigger than Martin Scorsese. That is beautiful. You got to get that framed. Oh, I plan on it. And by, you know, speaking of baseball, to you know, go to your, your other job, uh, one of my good friends who I, I made through working at the post is uh, is Joe Madden, uh, and I just hilariously I just got a text from Joe a week ago saying, uh, "Hey, can you give me some recs for Hulu and Netflix for next week?" So you know, even even led you know World Series winning legends are just at home wanting to watch movies like <laughs> Schlubs Like Us. 
I'm about to say, Joe Madden's the kind of guy, though, I could see him being, uh, he has esoteric taste, right? A glass of red wine. He could, he could fire up Mank, and I think he would appreciate the cinematography and the skill of it. I, I can't imagine him telling Mike Trout about it, but I can tell uh, Joe Madden would definitely enjoy it. Uh, Johnny Olingsitsky, <laughs> he's a great, great critic. You can check him out in the New York Post. You can follow him on Instagram, as I am now, at Johnny Olingsitsky. This was great stuff, Johnny. I appreciate your candor, and like I said, keep up the great stuff with your reviews. Always funny, always honest. Keep it up. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. Mount Rushmore. All right, Frances McDormand, Mount Rushmore for her, as uh, right now she's the favorite to win her third Academy Award, so let's get that out of the way. Nomadland, of course. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. A swaggering John Wayne character filled with rage and scorn, trying to find the perpetrator who raped her daughter. I mean, it's just a ferocious performance. One of my favorite movies of the last 10 years, and she completely commands the screen. But my favorite Frances McDormand performance is, of course, oh yeah, you betcha, yeah, Fargo which perhaps Joe will have an interesting take on since he's from the Twin Cities. Um, I know some people don't like the uh, characterization of characters in that area, but listen, Midwestern values, and McDormand's amazing because she's not only very funny, but she's also got the dramatic heft to pull off the role. I mean, I think I'm going to barf. And the fact that she can figure out dealer plates, DLR, I mean, everything about Fargo I love. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I can't think of another actress that could have played that role so well. This loving, maternal character, but also a whip-smart police detective who can completely undress William H. Macy because she knows that he's obviously got uh, an agenda. And that whole scene, by the way, with Michael Anaraga, also one of the great scenes ever. Uh, That gives us one more choice. Almost Famous. Shout out to Jim Miller. Check out James Andrew Miller's Origins on the Cadence 13 podcast. He loves Almost Famous. I'm sure he would vote for Fanny McDormand. She is really good in that movie, playing the mom, of course. Wonder Boys, underrated movie. The Michael Douglas, my buddy Lovelock, loves that movie. It is actually really funny. But I'm going to go with The Man Who Wasn't There. Again, it's my second favorite Coen Brothers movie after Fargo. Everyone knows, well, they should know, Francis McDormand is married to Joel Coen, uh, one half of the Coen Brothers. And I loved her in The Man Who Wasn't There. She's married to Billy Bob Thornton. She's this chatterbox yeah, at one point, she's just ripping her family, and Billy Bob just sits there quiet. She's having an affair with Jimmy Gandolfini. I mean, McDormand is phenomenal in that movie. Everyone in that movie is amazing. Billy Bob is obviously very taciturn. Gandolfini, unfortunately, meets an early demise, but playing this very affable character, much more friendly and happy than The Sopranos. But Frances McDormand, again, it's one of those other roles people would forget about, but the man who wasn't there, she's wonderful playing a woman who loves this guy, but also ends up being in prison and has to realize that her husband knows... She committed adultery, but she does not deserve to die. Underrated great movie, The Man Who Wasn't There. That's my Francis McDormand, Mount Rushmore. Joe? That is a great list. And so I'm going to um, just start out with my number four. That'll be Moonrise Kingdom. I thought that that, I think that that's an underrated West. Anderson movie and she's really great in that I've never seen The Man Who Wasn't There though but now I really want to watch that Um, I know that's a little delayed but that that sounds incredible I'm also going to put on Almost Famous you know me I'm a big big classic rock nerd Almost Famous is a movie that I've noticed people it's such an old white guy movie you know what I mean but I, I just have an obsession with Led Zeppelin that just pushes it over the edge for me and then I'll back you up on three billboards Outside Epi, Missouri, as you said, just full of rage, John Wayne type, opposite Sam Rockwell, who won Best Supporting Actor that year at the Oscars. 
uh, just a fantastic movie all around. But then, as you alluded to before, the best Francis McDormand movie is Fargo. And it, and as a Minnesotan and as someone who grew up in St. Paul, there are so many references and jokes in that movie that if you're from the state, you'll pick it up on. You'll pick up on, but it's so subtle and so quick that I appreciate it just for those little tidbits. You know what I mean? Uh, the accents are overdone. I was watching uh, an interview with Casey Affleck once, and he was talking about how when he was doing Manchester by the Sea, it was really important for Kenneth Lonergan to. Um, use really thick Massachusetts Boston accents. And Casey Affleck disagreed. He said it's much more subtle. The accent's much more subtle than that. But there you know, it was important to Kenneth Lonergan. So I, I think Fargo kinda does that. And if you're gonna talk about a movie that pairs Frances McNorman with the Cohen brothers of all the movies that she's done, this is by far the best. So my four are Moonrise Kingdom, Almost Famous, Three Billboards, and Fargo. I love it. Great list for one of the great screen actresses. And if she wins her third Academy Award, uh, Catherine Hepburn has the most ever with four. I know Meryl Streep has three. So Franny would tie Meryl, especially three best actresses. I mean, that is uh, that is pretty impressive stuff. All right. Thank you, as always, for checking out Cinephile. Over an hour, but I thought there was good content. We finally got the top ten of the books. John since he was terrific. Good top ten from Joe as well. So thank you for supporting us. Cinephile Pod, Adnan Esferk. We'll be back next week. I believe a review of Promising Young Woman. We'll figure out. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.